House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. It's called And Every Word is True. And now that is a play on words from Truman Capote. And the book is by Gary McAvoy. And let's start right in. How are you doing, Gary? Great, Al. Thanks. It's uh, super to be with you today. Well, we're not we're not there yet, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see how you feel in a while. <laughs> if you hear a click, you'll know how yeah. well it's going. <laughs> I've had that before, so and it's all good. So let's let's talk about you first. Um, let's talk about how you got into this this story and how you found the documents to write this book. Sure. Well, I, I've been a, a dealer of rare literary manuscripts and first edition books for some 25 years or so. And in 2012, I was approached by a client named Ronald Nye. Uh, Ron was the son of Harold Nye, who was the lead and field investigator for the Herbert Clutter family murders that took place in Garden City, Kansas in November of 1959. Truman Capote, the author of In Cold Blood, had sent letters and signed books to Agent I while Capote was working on his book in Spain. And Ron and I decided to mount a special auction for these materials, which included his father's investigation notes and uh, in two spiral-bound notebooks and a parcel of other documents, official KBI reports, uh, crime scene photographs, and various notes. Now, when the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, or KBI, heard about the pending sale, they issued a cease and desist, which soon turned into a lawsuit which uh, sought to prevent us from selling or publicizing the materials. Uh, but after a grueling four-year court battle, we ultimately won, and that's how the book came to be. Now, did you have a particular interest when, when, like, were you a fan of Capote? Were you a fan of the book, the movie? Did you have some sort of a, a personal, like, you were aware of everything already? Well, true crime is not a particularly strong genre for me. Uh, I, I, in fact, I, I think the last time, the only time, well, the first time I'd read In Cold Blood was when it was published, 1966, 67, maybe. And uh, like many people who read it around the world, I was gripped by its narrative and and uh, moved by the crimes itself. But um, as uh, a true crime, I wouldn't call myself a true crime devotee, uh, but when these materials landed in my lap, um, I knew I had something here that I could wrap my hands around. And, of course, the lawsuit coming up, kind of compelled me to take uh, take things further than I'd originally uh, planned. I wonder, like, uh, you, uh, the lawsuit in itself, such a big ordeal, um, and I guess you could never really come to a conclusion as to why it was such a big deal. Uh, but Well, uh, well the, I mean, the, obviously, uh, but how is that... To deal with, or was there times when you were going through that four-year term that you wanted to maybe drop out or bail? No, 
<laughs> not at all. Well, <laughs> no, I was going to fight, and so, and Ron, fortunately, Ron Nye was uh, of the same mind. The state claims to have based the case on the fact that Harold Nye was an employee of the KBI at the time the notebooks were created, thus making them state property. But Nye had a lifelong habit of using these spiral-bound reporters' notebooks we've all seen, uh, which are not so much of a diary as an ongoing journal of things in his life. Uh, and this was long before he joined the KBI, and this was our position defending ourselves in a lawsuit. Now, the court ultimately ruled that Nye's notebooks were essentially a collection of facts, uh, personal impressions, and to-do lists, things like that, concerning his investigation of the Clutter murders, and that the creation of these were deemed speech within the meaning of the First Amendment, and that's uh, that's what it boiled down to in the end. I would, I would imagine that um, when you first got them, were you really interested in the content, or did the lawsuit make you kind of get no, more detail? Very good question. No, I had I had little interest in the, the minutia of all the reports, uh, the investigative uh, documents. Uh, the crime scene photos were just grisly and uh, uh, very difficult to look at. But um, I. Uh, I, I just wanted to mount a simple auction, and Ron had family medical needs uh, expenses that he needed to cover, and that's the only reason. Ron's mother, Joyce, was uh, when her when Harold and I died in 2003. Uh, Joyce was cleaning out the house that uh, her family had lived in for some 30 years, and uh, Harold and I was a was a legendary keeper of stuff, including 15 bankers' boxes of his investigation reports and these spiral-bound notebooks I mentioned. And he stored most of these in the attic. Well, after Harold died, Joyce decided to clean house and had all 15 boxes shredded professionally. And uh, that was that. But uh, once he was cleaning out the house and packing things up, Ron came over one day to decide to help her. And uh, as he parked his car and started in toward the house, he looked in the trash bins and noticed that there were two books uh, by Truman Capote. One was the first edition of In Cold Blood, signed not only by Truman, but by all the principal investigators of the uh, Clutter murder and the entire the director and cast, uh, rather crew and cast, of the uh, 1967 movie In Cold Blood. So uh, Ron plucked these out of the trash and put them in his car and then went in to help his mom pack up. Well, some years later, Ron and his, uh, Ron uh, discovered that his ex-wife was uh, living in assisted housing. And he this was the love of his life. And even though they divorced, he was always held this, this uh, love for her. And when he found her, found her living in assisted uh, housing, uh, decided that uh, he would move her in and take care of her expenses. But as those expenses grew, he needed to find uh, more ways of making money to accommodate those. He recalled that the books uh, and letters, two letters that Truman had written to Agent Nye while he was writing in Cold Blood in Spain, uh, those two books and the two letters, Ron reasoned, had some value. So 
he contacted uh, a couple auction houses to see if there was any value there. And Christie's out of New York uh, was intrigued by the materials, but it's not it's not uh, something they normally handle. So they recommended Ron give me a call. And uh, when I uh, saw the materials, I had him send everything to me to validate it. Uh, the provenance was there. The uh, the uh, value was clearly uh, there. And um, as I was going through the materials, I knew that the uh, books and letters had uh, collectible value. Uh, but I wasn't so sure about the rest of the documents. They just seemed ancillary to the to the auction, and that's how I how I posed the auction, with the principal pieces being the books and letters, and the other material being having this historical association, as we call it. Um, that's when the KBI discovered that we were selling original uh, well copies of the official reports and. They didn't know what was in Harold Nye's notebook, so they didn't want to take the risk that, in their view, that uh, there were there may have been investigation methods or privacy issues at stake, even though the case was well over 50 years closed and solved. So that's how that's a little background as to how they, uh, the auction came to be. Yeah, I, f- I find that really interesting. I, I these sort of things are cool. Uh, one thing that comes to my mind is, I wonder how, <laughs> maybe you would know, how did uh, Ron Nye and, and his mother and family feel about Capote's book? I mean, if she's just throwing it away and it's <laughs> first and it's signed, the yeah, value yeah. of the book, you could sell it. Was it was just another book. Yeah. <laughs> but you could yeah, sell well, it. I, don't think, I, I actually don't think Joyce, uh, Mrs. Nye, had read the book. We all know the story of Harold Nye throwing it across the room, calling it a fiction uh, when he read it. Um, I do happen to know that he did finish the book because in that copy that Ron had sent me was a list of page references that Harold had made, had made notes about. And so he did get through the entire book eventually. What was the biggest objection, do you think? And knowing Ron... Like, like you've met him and you've spent time with him, obviously. What do you think yes. the biggest objection to, to Capote's version is? Uh, well, I know that Harold and I was, un, was uncomfortable with the way the clutters were, were uh, described. And I can't explain anything beyond that because, of course, Harold's passed away now. Right. And uh, we don't know what specifics that he found in the book that, that were that, that caused him so much grief. Now, he, for years, he had asked Ron to help him write a book about his story of the investigation, and Ron is convinced that he that his father knew a great deal more than was uh, told by Capote in In Cold Blood, and uh, very likely it had to do with some of the material that I've pulled out of his notes and and the files and put into my book. Yeah. So now, what what was your impression of Ron Nye when you met him? And, uh, and Salt of the earth. Yeah. Ron is, uh, Ron's uh, hobby is hot rods, and uh, he, he had one that uh, actually plays a role in the book named Godzilla. Uh, so he, he tinkers on hot rods and... Uh, 
He's been married a couple, three times and has uh, children and grandchildren. And he's now retired, living in Oklahoma City, uh, still caring for his ex-wife. And uh, yeah, he's a great, just a great guy, real gentle spirit. How uh, so with, now with a, with yeah with an with a an eidetic memory. If I would go as far as say a photographic memory. He never forgets a thing. I interviewed him for well, well over seven, well over six years uh, in the making of this book, and the richness of his stories that I was able to extract from him were uh, just a writer's dream, frankly. Yeah, he was on your audio book as well. Um, yes. I noticed that he did his parts and stuff. Um, how, how does he feel now that this book is out and he did the forward, I believe, or part of it. And um, how's he? How's he feeling now? Does he feel like the story's more complete? His greatest concern, Al, was that uh, the state was had tarnished the Nye family name by calling his father uh, a thief. Um, both to both of us, but to Ron in particular, this is one of the most disturbing aspects of the lawsuit that the state would go so far as to call Harold Nye a thief for misappropriating state records. What all he did was took home personal copies of his own case files, which, by the way, was entirely permissible by statute at the time. Um, the, the Nye family has a long and proud tradition of being one of the founding families of Kansas and Oklahoma, and those win-at-any-cost tactics employed by the Attorney General were just below the belt greatly agitated Ron and his family. Fortunately, the court made it clear when it ruled in our favor that Nye had done nothing wrong, and that was some consolation. Yeah. I, I just wonder why they got so, um, well, just downright mean, I guess is the best way to put it, why, why they would say something um, so nasty about the family like that. Why? I mean, obviously they were in attack mode. This is something they wanted real bad. But yeah, that we I have been asked many times what what Kansas's motivation was, and it's still a mystery to us, even to um, both our attorneys here in Seattle and and uh, our attorney in Kansas. They were mystified the entire four years as to why Kansas was putting such an aggressive posture behind their their lawsuit. Um, it, they never explained it. We couldn't fathom it. Um, so I just went on about my business. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, you're never going to know unless unless they come out and say why, particularly, yeah. you know, the whole. So now, what, what was the biggest surprise for you um, going through his notes? What, what, what shocked well, you the most? Actually, as I mentioned, I had not read much of Nye's case materials at all in those early days. <clears throat> it was 2012 at the time. Nor had I looked in, inside the Nye's notebooks for that matter, since all we were doing was mounting a simple option of books and letters to help defray Ron's uh, medical expenses. But when the specter of the lawsuit appeared, I had to learn as much of these materials as I could to explain to the court what was actually happening. Um, but in digging deeper, I found a number of significant differences between what Capote had written in, in Cold Blood 
and in the documents I was holding in my hands. Uh, for example, there was an informer in the Kansas State Penitentiary by the name of Floyd Wells, who had been a cellmate of one of the Carter killers, Richard Hickok. Now, Wells was the linchpin to both the crimes and the investigation. And while sharing the same cell at uh, KSP, uh, Wells had convinced Hickok that he had once worked for a rich farmer out west by the name of Herb Clutter, who kept the safe containing $10,000, and it would be an easy score to pull off. Hickok claims Wells gave him a map of the Clutter's farm and a diagram of the house, showing such details as where the office was and which bedrooms the family slept in. But the fact is, Wells only worked for Clutter as a ranch hand for some seven months, and he left his employment before the house had even been completed. So Wells could not have known anything about it, yet someone provided that diagram for Hickok. So Hickok makes plans to rob the Clutters when he got out of prison about a month later and told Wells he would cut him in for a share of the score. But there was no safe. There was no $10,000. And when Smith and Hickok hit the Clutter House on November 15th, 1959, they murdered the entire family after finding less than $50. <clears throat> there was another important distinction I discovered in the notebooks that a scene, there's a scene in In Cold Blood and in the movie where Harold Guy, alone at the Hickok farm, is interviewing Hickok's uh, father, Walter, and he spots the murder weapons, a shotgun and a knife. But he does nothing at the time. Now, Capote reports this as happening five days before it actually occurred in truth. And, and then Nye was accompanied by several other agents with the formal search warrant. <clears throat> the reason for this delay was that Alvin Dewey believed it was, had long believed it was a grudge killing. And as a result, didn't give any credence at all to Floyd Wells' claim that uh, Hickok and Smith were to blame, and it was just a robbery. It's a pretty important detail to have gotten wrong or, or misinterpreted, but it sure made for a dramatic scene in the book and in the 1967 film. Yeah, and, and after all, that's what's important. <laughs> mm, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be the dramatic Who cares scene. about the facts? <laughs> yeah, we do we got to make it catch you. Uh, and that that leads me to the uh, to the uh, like I know this and I've um, the name of the book um, maybe review that a little bit so people know why you called it and every word is true. Sure. Well, Capote had long claimed that his book was the two words that that spring to mind are immaculately factual, and even as early as 1966, within months after the book coming out, many reviewers were taking pot shots at it as being. Uh, as parts of it being untrue. Um, but uh, he, in, I think it was 1967, Capote was being interviewed by Karen Gunderson, uh, a reporter at Newsweek. And in it, he gave her a, a fantastic quote. He said, my book is about the clutters, who were, who were the four clutters who were murdered on November 15th. And Richard Hickok and Perry Smith, who were hanged April 14th, 1965. My book is about their lives and their deaths. And every word is true. And I looked at that and I said, this is perfect. It's, it's, it, there's irony. There's, uh, uh, the belief that his book was true. When in fact, uh, not just what I found, but many have in the past 50 some years. 
there are many uh, errors and omissions that uh, uh, the book gets blamed for. Um, this wasn't my book is not a takedown of Capote or in cold blood by any means. It simply adds supplements, rich supplement to the material that he's provided and uh, gives it, I think, a fairer balance of the investigation since Capote clearly favored Alvin Dewey as his protagonist when, in fact, he reminded the majority of the legwork. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting point. You think that, um, you think Capote himself felt um, his book was really that accurate, like that true to events? Or do you think um, he was just so caught up he, he wouldn't know? I suspect that he knew that he was creating a work of, well, as he put it, a nonfiction novel. A novel is, by definition, based on uh, fictive devices. So uh, he, he blended the, the fiction uh, that uh, he used to provide dialogue for the Clutter family, for example, or the final scene where Alvin Dewey is uh, in the graveyard with one of the other principals. Uh, those did not happen. He clearly acknowledged that at the end, even though well, he said that the book is all factually accurate. Well, and I understand is that from a writer, sometimes you have to um, do some some of your own fill-in, otherwise there's a lot of blanks. Sometimes you can't get all the information. Right, right. You know. I, um, yeah, and I think he acknowledged that. I really do. I, I, uh, uh, if he simply hadn't used the words immaculately factual, he would have taken far less heat. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's 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 just interesting. Some some of the things stick stick out uh, for me for some reason. Uh, the the when you were talking about Cherokee Indian and uh, and uh, mm -hmm. some of some of what he claimed in his book about particular people like that. Um, right. Just I just wonder where, where he if he knew the true information, if he just tried to make it one way or another. Same as about... Just to, clar just to, just to clarify that point for your listeners, uh, Capote defined Perry Smith as being Cherokee, when in fact his family was northern Paiute, western Shoshone, which is in no way connected to the Cherokee tribe. And um, though we have no idea why he used Cherokee, um... I, I surmise that it's because the, the Cherokee, the Navajo, and uh, I can't remember the third right now, but the three largest tribes in North America are most commonly used, uh, um, most likely because of our, uh, the American uh, television and movies that Cherokees and Navajos were more widely known. Sue. Yeah. Sue was the third tribe. He was also, he was very convinced that, um, I guess it was uh, uh, not Hitchcock, but Perry that killed all four members of the Clutter family, when we really don't know. We don't know, except that Perry and several, uh, I also have, as I think I've alluded to in the book, uh, have Perry Smith's um, personal journals that he left Wendell and Josephine Meyer, the undersheriff of Garden City, on his way to the gallows. And uh, in it, Perry clearly 
uh, acknowledges that he killed all four clutters with his own hands. Even though I've, I can re- I read these words in his writing, I still have no idea whether that was true or if he's if he's taking the guilt on from the crimes, uh, which seems to be in his nature. Yeah, it's, it's such a complex case, really. Um, mm-hmm, very much so. So now, did did you get? <laughs> this is a tough. Did you get what you expected to get out of the book? I got more. <laughs> Capote once Capote once said that he only used twenty percent of all the research he had in working on in cold blood. I feel much the same. There's so much more that I could have put in, and I just i i couldn't I couldn't make it work. And I didn't. And without going into, as we discussed earlier, the uh, uh, the conspiracy theory zone, which I worked very hard to stay away from. Uh, but uh, I mean, just that that uh, meeting in Cimarron alone. It, uh, let, let, me t- let me touch on that, if you don't mind. Yeah. And the in the Hickok letter as well. After the killers, Perry Smith and, and uh, Richard Hickok were apprehended and awaiting execution on death row. A reporter for the Wichita Eagle with the memorable name of Starling Mac Nations had met Hickok, uh, and the two decided to work on a book together in which Hickok would tell the ins- his inside story of the murders and, and both killers' flight from justice. So over the next year or so, Hickok wrote, uh, hundreds of pages of letters to Mac Nations, which would ultimately form a book titled High Road to Hell, <clears throat> which never got published, but that was Nations' goal. And this described in, uh, these letters described in spectacular detail every element of the crime and where they fled afterwards to Mexico, to California, then cross-country all the way down to Florida, Miami. Uh, everything Hickok had written conforms to what the killers have said in their interrogations, with the exception of some pretty shocking disclosures, which he includes. Specifically, that he and Smith were planning to meet up with someone named Roberts after the murders to collect $5,000. Uh, he also mentioned things like, well, while they were in the clutter home, they had to tear up the place to make it look like a robbery. Yeah and other statements which clearly, to, to my mind, alluded to a murder for hire. Uh, now, Hickok was on death row at the time, as I said, with no apparent need to lie or embellish on a story that by that time had been pretty well known. But in Harold Nye's notebooks, uh, he describes an interview with the night marshal in the nearby, the, the nearby cowboy town, Cimarron, Kansas, which happened just a couple hours after the murders in which three suspicious men entered a cafe, two of them resembling Smith and Hickok, down to Perry's limping leg and Hickok's scarred face, and they were in the presence of a third unknown figure. Now, I believe this might have been this Roberts character. Two, they were also driving a, a, a car identical to the one the killers were driving, a, a, a 1956 um, Chevy, and appeared, they appeared nervous in the presence of the marshal and left the cafe before the food they ordered was ready to go. It's all very suspicious. But I, I, I imagine during the investigation, further connections to the clutter murders just weren't made at the time. 
um, but perhaps most relevant and up to now completely unknown part of the clutter investigation that was an incredibly important detail that the case coordinator, Alvin Dewey, had neglected to make known to anyone else that there was evidence of Mr. Clutter having an having an affair with the wife of his business partner. And now Mrs. Clutter had been under psychiatric care for years and was diagnosed with depression and physical malaise and nervousness. She even slept in a separate bedroom and relied on her daughter, Nancy, and the housekeeper to attend her domestic duties. But credible eyewitness reports place Clutter and his paramour at a co-op dance in Wichita uh, without each other's spouses in attendance. Uh, and after the dance, they headed upstairs in the hotel elevator. Uh, Dewey and Clutter were close friends. And given the small-town dynamics of the time, it's just not surprising he tried to keep this information from getting out. But official reports tell a pretty compelling story. And uh, now that with new questions arising as to what the real motive was for the crimes in the first place. And you recall reading, by the way, that in his final days, Mr. Clutter was uh, described as being angry and having unusual frustrations and apparently taken up smoking a vice so repugnant he wouldn't hire anyone who smoked or drank. And as is well known to readers of In Cold Blood, on the morning of his death, he had taken out a life insurance policy that he'd been planning to do for at least two years. So the breadth and depth of the material I had to work on for this book was absolutely overwhelming. One reason it took seven years to complete. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Well, that's it. You know, you you get caught into different facts or situations and you want to find out more about them and it's not mm-hmm. it's, it, it's time consuming especially when it's an, a, a dated crime like this yeah I, I, you know, now did you spend time trying to find out who Mr. Clutter was and, and what about him would have been so alluring to kill other than perhaps having a safe like what, what would be the alternatives I, Clutter, uh, one thing that Truman Capote uh, touched on, and I think rather briefly, was uh, that Herb Clutter was a very politically important individual. Um, I, I found that he was the, uh, uh, he was, had been appointed by President Dwight Eisenhower to the Farm Credit Board, uh, which, whose responsibility was to set pri- farming price parity um, policies for the whole country, and uh, uh, Herb Clutter was also the uh, founder and the uh, member of the both the Nans- uh, National Kansas Wheat Association and the Kansas, uh, I don't know, the National Wheat Association and the Kansas Wheat Association, uh, among local co-ops and of course the church groups he was part of. But he was very politically uh, powerful. And uh, he had made, uh, as many people do in politics, uh, enemies in, in that world, one of whom was Ezra Taft Benson, the, the current Secretary of Agriculture, uh, whose uh, ideas for pricing were uh, in opposition to Herb Clutter's. No. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I was just, <laughs> I didn't want to cut Sorry. you off. I didn't <laughs> want to, okay. if you were going to. I wrapped up there, I think. <laughs> yeah, I just, <laughs> okay. Um, so, so, but do you think that, that what he was and what he did and his involvements would be enough to actually have him killed? Oh, gosh, speculating like that is uh, something I've, I've tried to avoid, but um, I I tend to think it was more of more related to uh, the affair he might have been having, or clearly was having, rather. Uh, I'd probably rather not get into any more details about that, just uh, out of respect for the family, but... Um, yeah, um, no. I just, it could it could have either been that or the or the politics, but uh, it's pretty clear that you don't kill four people for fifty bucks. I mean, this is the the, the motive has always left the readers uh, wondering if that was the real story. I think that's what stands out from anybody who leaves in cold blood is why would they do, why would two men do that for just fifty bucks? Yeah. Given the information I found, it makes a little more sense. Yeah. Well, they they tried to make it look like um, Perry was was kind of uh, had a rage, went insane, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't believe that happened at all. That brain explosion. Yeah. Yeah. Because they they tried to make it look like he was, you know, ha- having a, a meltdown cool. over. Right. His... It was a, con- a convenient devo- a convenient device for the book. Yeah. And as Perry, as a, a Capote favored Perry Smith in his uh, depiction of the killer uh, throughout the book, uh, it makes sense that that would that would explain and uh, somehow forgive his actions at the moment. Yeah, give it a reason. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you see your, where do you see it going now? Like, what do you what do you plan to do now with the information you have? Are you going to go further and do another book? Or are you going to pursue more on this case or are you you know I, I, I've thought about uh, I know so much more about Perry Smith and uh, Richard Hickok than uh, than anyone who's read in cold blood and if there is a demand for that material I might go ahead and do a book on the two of them and bring in the psychology of their thinking yeah, I think that would be a real, real interesting read um, to to, to kind of go through more about them and even their relationship mm-hmm. with each other. Yes, yeah. yeah I think uh, Capote covered that pretty well, uh, but there's uh, and there's not much more on that that I found in the materials. Uh, in both uh, Hickok's letters, although. They didn't want to kill each other. That's pretty clear. <laughs> there were many times while they were on the road that they thought of offing each other uh, as as the only remaining witness against them, or because one was pissed off against the other, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. Now, um, have you have you heard from any of the uh, remaining family members or anything? Um, about your book or any no. feedback? No, not from the family at all. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, and not, and of course the KBI and the Attorney General of Kansas, none of them comment on any of this at this point. No, we did. 
<laughs> oh, they're well, they're furious now that we want attorney's fees. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the court just re- redeemed this uh, uh, a pointless lawsuit, and uh, there were portions of it that the state clearly was out of bounds on, and the court punished them by. Uh, awarding some portion of attorney's fees against the massive bill that we had. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, it should. I, I, I just, I'm still, I think that's uh, craziness how much effort they put into something that, uh, if if anything, would just reveal more about the case and more mm-hmm. truth. So right. uh, why be so, it, it's, it's not like, it, there was not like anything suggestive about them doing something wrong in particular, so right. I'm confused. But um, yeah, there there are there are some materials still remaining in the uh, KBI archives. Uh, one of those is a uh, an audio tape that I understand Richard Hickok and Perry Smith were um, together in a room talking, and they were being recorded without their knowledge. And I would give anything to hear what that was on that tape and the case. KBI has chosen not to release it. And that's one of the reasons they dropped their lawsuits, I'm led to believe, is because uh, there were two prongs in our lawsuit. Once, one was, uh, do we have the right to publish, which we, we did, the court ruled in our favor on that. And the other was, who owns the materials? Well, we were just about to go into that part of the lawsuit when uh, this, this, the state abruptly dropped the lawsuit because they knew that we would have rights of discovery to review any materials that still had on the case, and that included that audio tape. Wow, that 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 raises a lot of questions. <laughs> sure does. <laughs> because it sure does. You know what would be on the tape that mm-hmm. I, I don't understand. Um, um, prosecutors and legal, you know, departments trying to hide evidence after the fact like that, when it would just tell you more of the truth. It's not... Well, especially 60 years after the fact. And that may be why, there, why there's no interest in it. I mean, they, certainly the Attorney General of Kansas has a great deal to do. Yeah. <laughs> like any, any Attorney General, they're probably overwhelmed with work. So 60-year-old cases, uh, that's something they're likely to reopen for any reason. Yeah, just crazy. Craziness. Now, now, now of course, now the book is available everywhere, uh, Amazon and all fine bookstores. (laughs) It is indeed. Do you have a website or a place that people can come find you? (laughs) I do, Well, Thanks. Yes, it's my name, GaryMcAvoy.com. And uh, I'm on Facebook at uh, GaryMcAvoyAuthor. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.